0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the New Book uh, Network for the Journal of Women's History. My name is Dina Hassan. Uh, I'm a lecturer at the University of Oklahoma. I did my PhD in linguistics, and uh, I was a previous uh, Fulbright scholar at Boston University. I'm so happy today uh, to welcome uh, Dr. Nicola Pratt. She's an Associate Professor in the Politics and International Studies Department at the University of Warwick, UK, and Vice President of the British Society for the Middle Eastern Studies. She teaches and researches on the international politics of the Middle East, with a particular interest in feminist and decolonial approaches, and a focus on politics from below. She has written and co-edited a number of books on women and gender in the Middle East, Her most recent monograph, entitled Embodying Geopolitics, Generations of Women's Activism in Egypt, Jordan, and Lebanon, was published by University of California Press in fall 2020. She has also written extensively on Egyptian politics from below and is currently co-authoring a book on popular culture and the contested meanings of the 2011 Egyptian Revolution, which is also the subject of multimedia digital archive that she co-authored. So uh, welcome, Nicola. It's such a pleasure and honour to be with you today. Thank you for being with us.
1: Thank you, Dina. It's such a pleasure for me to be here as well. And thank you for all your, you know, for all your work in, in spending time to read my book. And I'm really looking forward to this conversation.
0: Well, let me start by congratulating you on such a wonderful book. Um, I can't express how uh, happy and engaged I was reading this book um, because it felt so much at home for me being an Egyptian woman myself and uh, having uh, witnessed a lot of what you talk about in your book, um, whether firsthand like in the uh, Egyptian revolution in 2011, moving forward or things that also I have learned about the history of my country and my region. And you tackle all of that in a very skillful way and such an engaging um, book. I'm so happy, really, that I have read this book and I'm so happy to have this conversation with you. So uh, thanks again.
1: Thank you. That's too kind.
0: Um, so I would like to start um, with the very first thing that I saw when I uh, had this book in my hand, which is the image of the book cover. Um, so I see a woman that is half veiled, Uh, she's looking upwards, her expressions are really mixed between frustration and hope at the same time. Um, To me, the image was a little intriguing, and uh, it just got me curious about whether that is something that you chose yourself, or was it the publisher, and uh, what does it signify to you? taking into consideration the interviews um, that you have been doing throughout the whole Arab region?
1: Thanks, Dina, for this question. So I spent a lot of time thinking about the image for the the cover um, and not just the cover of this book, actually, because before publishing the book, I gave a number of talks at different venues, you know, as I was sort of going through the research process and, and beginning to, formulate my thoughts and every time I gave a talk at a venue you know they also ask you for an image that can be used for the poster to publicize the talk so actually this image originated um, in uh, as a uh, as a part of the poster for um, one of the talks I gave earlier, on uh, early on before my book was published and the image is actually a painting by a Jordanian Palestinian artist called Marwa Najjar, and I came across her work whilst I was in Jordan, um, and uh, and I think her her images are just so beautiful. They're so she has many beautiful images, and this one caught my attention because I thought it's so difficult to choose an image for a subject such as women's activism in the Middle East without falling into traps of cliches and sort of Orientalist cliches, but also um, sort of the dangers of misrepresenting what women's, act- the diversity of women's activism in the region. So, you know, it, it's problematic, for example, just to have an image with women marching in a protest because a lot of women don't That's not the the style of activism that they do. Um, And it's problematic if you have only women with headscarves, but then again, you can't have an image just of women with no headscarves. So (laughs) this sort of minefield um, uh, 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 with regards to visual representation of women in the Middle East. So I wanted to avoid all of that. So um, this painting spoke to me because on the one hand, it sort of is, um, signifying it's signifying a, a woman belonging to we can identify her as a woman belonging perhaps to the Middle East region, not just because of the the head the the, the scarf on the head which also could be a hoodie you know there's an ambiguity about it like you could look at it as like it's a hoodie or you could look at it as though it's a scarf um, but also the colors very well very evocative of sort of a um, man Jordan you know with the with the with the sandstone colour of the of the houses there so there was that sort of linking to place as well which was also which obviously is an important theme in the book um, and the the I, I read the images of a woman staring into the future so looking to the future not knowing maybe exactly what's ha- going to happen, but at least but the, sort of like an optimistic type of, um, has that sort of optimistic type of uh, sentiment to it. So again, sort of avoiding ideas of misery or, you know, so for me, the image avoided a lot of the problems that could come up with um, images of, uh, you know, visual representations of women in the Middle East. And at the same time, I in general, I just love the, the artwork of this artist, Modern and
0: Thank you, Nicola. I really uh, loved uh, your talk about the image and uh, how it falls out of the trap of um, categorizing women under one category or the other. Uh, so it's really telling about the book and it's intriguing uh, in a way that lets you want to read the book and see what is this expression about on her face. Uh, So thanks for that. Um, I would like to start actually with the very first uh, quotation in your book, which is also intriguing. Um, It's a quotation by Hala Shukralla. Or those are her exact words. Uh, So she says, uh, quote, somehow, when you get involved, there's a sense of obligation that grows with you. And it always makes you feel like I can't go. I can't leave. And it's weird that you have that sense because a lot of people who were also involved didn't have. They left and they immigrated. So I have always been thinking, why so some of us have that sense? And it's a false sense because life does go on without you. So why one has that sense that it's important to be in the middle of these things? I have no idea. I'm trying to make sense but I have no idea why, unquote. So this quotation of hers is really remarkable and it's rightly placed on the very first page of the book. Um, I myself felt it's very relevant and I cannot deny that I have had similar thoughts at different stages of my life. And I wonder what were your thoughts on this particular quotation and uh, what was your reasoning for giving it that prominent position in the book were there certain elements of Hella's story that you related to more than others? Did her words sound true for other women who probably could not articulate it the way she did? Is it your own assessment of women's situation that's summarized in this quote? So could you just uh, tell us a little bit more about it?
1: Yeah, thanks for asking me. So that actually that quote spoke quite, um, quite deeply to me. I was quite touched by that quote. So it spoke, spoke to me on an individual level, which is about this feeling of obligation, and how it's so difficult to escape. And I guess the one of the things that intrigues me is that on the one hand, you know, being an activist is supposed to be a sign of freedom and um, autonomy. But Actually, it doesn't feel like that. (laughs) It feels like an obligation. Um, And even when you're very impassioned for the cause that you're fighting for, it takes time away from your family, from your friends. Um, So this is something I felt about my own activism, but it was definitely a theme that um, in one way or another came up in a lot of the interviews you know that um activism is a, is a form of, it's a, it is a sacrifice uh, in many ways of people's personal lives of their family lives um so it's it's not um it's not so simple as to think that just because women are active that therefore you know this is a, a sign of liberation or something you all know?
0: right um Also, um, you talk about your motivation for writing this book, uh, since you're talking about your uh, activism. And you note, and I quote from your own words, um, I was motivated to write against a prevalent discourse at the time, promoted by Western media, policymakers, NGOs, and think tanks, among others, that viewed women's participation in protests as new and exceptional. Such attitudes reflected an Orientalist epistemology denying the possibility of women's agency within Arab-Muslim culture, unquote, um, and viewing it instead as an expression of Western values and uh, of freedom and autonomy. So uh, I was just curious as to what made you view those ideas as unreasonable and drive you to take a journey to explore the truth behind such Orientalist views. And uh, how did the idea come... To you in the first place, if you' would like us to know more
1: about this mm. so uh, I mean, in general, my i've been very I've been very influenced by this post orientalist turn in scholarship on the middle east, so it it has been quite central to all of my scholarship to uh, try to uh, not just challenge but in some way dismantle. Orientalist assumptions about the Middle East that continue to have such um, they can they continue to live on in so many forms, you know, not just in scholarship, but obviously in popular culture, in political discourse, and you know, I very much um, you know uh, follow on in from Edward Said in in seeing these types of um stereotypes about the middle east about people from the middle east as not just um dehumanizing but also as um you know quite crucial to the ongoing domination of western powers over the middle east um which i see as a negative thing um so in general, that's a, you know, that's a sort of theme that runs through all my scholarship. And I think the, what was interesting about the, the moment of the Arab uprisings in 2011 is, again, how we see that policymakers and, and the media in the West, they're unable to break out of these Orientalist stereotypes, um, which see the world in these very binary terms, you know, West as progressive and the Middle East as somehow... Backward in scare quotes and and with women being um the principal markers of that uh, cultural and fundamental difference between the west and the middle east <coughs> sorry so um yes yeah, so that that's really the, the one of the, the 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 factors that uh led me to start engaging in this in the topic for the book and I'm not the first person to write about the history of women's activism lots of uh, other scholars have written also on on this topic and if I begin to mention some names I'm sure I'll I'll offend some of those who I I I forget to mention so I'm not going to start on the long list of brilliant um, feminist scholars of the Middle East who've documented women's activism uh, what I guess what I wanted to do, that was slightly different, maybe, was to really look at the long sweep of women's activism, uh, going from colonial bits sort of the anti-colonial struggle to the, the present day, because uh, that's um, that's something that generally isn't done, and I think that allows us to understand the evolution of women's activism over time and to historicize it. So to historicize the present in order to understand the significance of the present, you you know, I I think it's important to, um, to understand the past. So uh, that, that was, so, yes. So that's how I started on this journey of looking at the, the, the long history of women's activism um, in order to really uh, contextualize and understand the present moment, or what was then the present moment. Sue, um, my, we've moved on quite significantly in time since I finished researching for the book. But
0: yeah, I was just gonna say thank you for taking uh, such a journey to find out the truth and allow those women to voice their own stories and their own hopes and their own frustrations uh, instead of the typical way of just talking on their behalf, like you're saying, and just orientalizing women um, in a discourse that has lasted for so long. (laughs) And we long for such books like yours that help us get a different perspective, particularly that it's based on uh, firsthand experience and uh, women's voices. Uh, that's really a remarkable achievement. So thank you for that. Uh, It's interesting um, um, that you based your journey on scholarship in the first place, and then that led you to a journey to listen to women's voices in the first place? Uh, Or was it the other way around? Did you ever like uh, meet uh, Arab women and they started talking to you and that kind of sparked your interest to start on a journey or was it scholarship in the first place and then that's what led you to do those interviews Mm.
1: so uh that's also a really important question for me i see my i try to make my scholarship as sort of integral to my activism and my um and my everyday life i um in in many ways and i was very um lucky to Live in Egypt uh, for a few years in the 1990s. I um, so I mean I guess my my relationship to Egypt in particular and and to into the the Middle East region in general began because I studied Arabic at university. My first degree was in Arabic, and as a result of that, I went. I visited Egypt and and, and spent some time there, and then I loved it so much. I went afterwards after I finished my first degree and so it's from a longer term engagement with um, Egypt in particular but the but other after that I visited other countries and, and had uh, and stayed there also f- for for a differing amount of times but um, it's through that longer engagement in the region that I have developed an interest to study the region and to and and for for me something like challenging orientalism is not just a scholar it's not just about scholarship it is also again linked to my political concerns about the western uh I- interventions in the region um it's been part of my activism in the anti war movement um and Uh, And, you know, also as a as a feminist, I have an interest in uh, in women's lives and 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 also a commitment to listening to women's voices. So all of these things for me are all intertwined, like my scholarly interests, my activist interests and just my my life experiences Mm.
0: That's very interesting, because I was wondering about that uh, on a personal level, like how did you uh, come to this realization that you want to uh, set on this journey and here to listen to women's voices? So uh, thanks for talking about this part of your life, of living in Egypt and uh, learning Arabic yourself. Thank you. Um, I would like now to get us to the core argument uh, in your book, Um And from what I understand, um, you mentioned that uh, women's activism should be viewed as an embodied geopolitics. So could you please elaborate more on your core argument? You talk about the importance of everyday life of ordinary men and women as a significant site in exercise of and resistance to geopolitical power. Uh, So what about the interaction between the personal and the political, which I do see come up a lot in the book, And how uh, are both aspects shaped and are shaped by the other? Um, Also, what were your ideas before the interviews about that kind of intersection? And did they change in any way uh, after you did the interviews? Or did they just reconfirm what your previous ideas were?
1: Hmm. Yeah, so, of course, it's a long-standing feminist slogan. The personal is political. And... And then that that slogan was taken up by a feminist a feminist scholar called Cynthia Enloe, who's writing in the field of international relations, and she talked about the the personal is also international political. Um so this so so this was something that I really wanted to uh examine in depth in relation to the Middle East region and women's lives there the the actual um, a term embodied geopolitics is a term that I uh, have borrowed from feminist geopolitics and it is a term that I came to after I did the interviews so let's say I when I did the interviews I had this sort of feminist curiosity about how the you know the political and the personal or the Internationally political and the personal intersect in women 's lives, but after doing the interviews i i that 's when I came to this um, interest in spe- specifically the embodied nature of women 's activism so what struck me is that when w- women as women activists what 's often ignored in a lot of literature is that they are you know that first of all that activism is an embodied practice um that it's not just about um women sitting in offices or in seminars and talking or um talking amongst themselves or talking to other people whether government officials or or grassroots communities or something it's it's also about what does it mean when women go as women as gendered bodies into the public sphere and perform their activism in a variety of ways so that can include for example being in a protest that can include going into a a low income neighborhood and providing social services of various kinds um it does include women sitting in seminars and talking but it it can include a whole range of different um, activities that are all embodied in, you know, they're all forms of embodied um, performance, um, which have differential effects depending on the context um, and the and the, the what so the, the maybe the specific place in which they take place, but also the wider socio-political uh, and and geopolitical context. So this is, this is what struck me, for example, when women talk to me about, particularly when they've transgressed dominant gender norms, this is where it really becomes apparent because there's, when women tell those um, stories about being part of a protest or standing up to authority in various ways, um, these types of, um, spec, if you like, particularly spectacular types of activism where there's a real potential of confrontation, um, between women activists and authority, police, um, also, uh, confrontation with family members, standing up to fathers, brothers. And, and that, and that's when you see in particular how, um, it's in that transgression that transgression of dominant norms that it really became obvious to me how activism is embodied Um, and and that's what led me to also think about how that might uh, change over time you know why is it sometimes so spectacular but other times it might be quite mundane so what are the factors that are shaping that and Tracing again the importance of tracing that history of women's activism really allows you to understand the different factors that might come into play at different moments that um, that shape women's activism and, and and in particular the differences between you know women uh, in anti-colonial struggle for example versus the way uh, women have been. Uh, co-opted into and also have actively participated in post colonial state building um how they've participated in, uh, in 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 political movements and protests against regimes um so all these different sort of examples of um different moments of struggle um have have had different uh, implications then for shaping women's activism.
0: That's very interesting. Um, Actually, I love that your book spans a long period of time that helps uh, people who are not familiar with the region and its history understand the background of the political influence on the uh, women's activists and the progression of them gaining the rights at one point throughout history, and then uh, and then taking some steps back. Um, so that offers a really um, like overview, good overview for uh, people who are not familiar with the region, and uh, it helps uh, people educators like myself. Uh, I try to teach literature, and as I'm particularly interested in Arab women literature. And I understand uh, you focus more on uh, politics of the Middle East than literature, but like I'm saying, a book like yours uh, does help uh, a lot in classes that we teach about literature because literature could focus more, like you are saying, maybe on the personal side of the story because we do hear, like women talking about how that, like you're saying, affects their relationships with. Uh, male uh, partners in their lives or family members, Uh, so we do see that, but then a book like yours helps students and helps uh, teachers uh, talk in a broader way about the political and uh, in addition to the social element of of the movement, so again, thank you for that, I'm I'm really happy with this book. Can can I just add as well, it's just, it is so important
1: to highlight how uh, gender relations have changed over time, just within the 20th century into the 21st century, but again it's also about um, challenging these sort of Orientalist uh, assumptions about the region as though nothing ever changes, you know, that women's uh, oppression in the Middle East is you know something static and constant um, but actually what was important for me to show in the book is how for example uh, in the in the sort of um, immediate period of the after the after independence those first couple of decades, just how much um, progress women made and then how much that was threatened as a result of changes at the geo, you know geopolitical changes at the regional level you know how the defeat of arab nationalism as a result of the 6 day war in 1967 how how that um really then threatened some of those gains and you know what what uh, what's important is not to see things only in terms of progress, linear progress but to understand the ups and the downs and you know that there's never you know <laughs> we can't just sort of um, easily cat- there's also an issue that we can't easily categorise something as a as as an example of progress um, or an example of failure that there's also a lot of grey areas in between and there's um, incremental changes that happen and then there's sudden changes that happen. You know, that there's a whole mix of different changes that are happening um, and that actually what we see is a very dynamic, vibrant and fluid situation when it comes to women's rights and gender relations uh in the middle east region
0: that's very true because again uh it helps us uh get out of the trap of binaries and that women are either activists or oppressed human beings and so that's one of the wonderful things about this book is that it helps us see the gray areas like you're saying and uh, the complex elements involved in the life of women um that's not either or or one way or the other um so thanks about that uh, my next question to you um is that you also note and i quote from your words a key site for the construction of cultural difference and hence the constriction of national sovereignty was and remains the female body so we were talking unquote um we were talking about um uh, the personal versus the political aspect uh, of women's lives. But of course, the female body uh, has been subject of so much discourse, whether in the Middle East or in the West or Western discourse about Middle Eastern women. So my question to you is, how do you see the difference between the West and the Middle East in terms of the infringement on, on the female body to create standards that women have to follow and how far do you think women have gone in fighting that kind of infringement whether in on the discourse level uh, or whether on the personal level yeah
1: so my my observation is that the the strength of the discourse of national sovereignty is is pretty universal i mean we live in a world where the nation state still remains the preeminent unit of governance and for most people the preeminent um, unit with which they identify and I think it shows that and and I think also universally you know gender is is very important to that construction of national sovereignty Uh, but in different ways you know uh, in different countries, or, I mean, there. For example, this what I talk about the, in the book about the concept of female respectability and how women's um, public behavior, is, you know, is expected to conform to a norm of female respectability, uh, in which women are both to, to borrow um, uh, Afsan and Ashmabadi's phrase, women are both modest yet yeah. Uh, but modern at the same time, and I think you can see that sort of um, idea present uh, across uh, many countries and many continents that the that women in particular women when women go into the public sphere their their modesty is um, uh, something that's like focused on <laughs> there's a lot of attention on how women dress how uh, you know, how, how many sexual partners they have. And, you know, it's just a maybe different um, degrees to which that happens in different countries. So definitely this is, I think, something that for all women going into the public sphere, they, they face this um, norm that's regulating them. And the degree to which it's possible for women to... To challenge that norm is, I think, constrained by its association with constructions of national sovereignty. Because if you overtly challenge it, then you risk to be seen as somehow challenging. Uh, you, you know, you're you're like almost like a, a traitor to your to your nation. You know, to step to try and step beyond these sorts of Um, dominant gender norms and therefore I think for the most part, women often don't overtly challenge um, the relationship between certain gender norms and the construction of national sovereignty because to do so would put them in a a very precarious place Um, so they work within those constraints. And, of course, women can leave make, make sort of uh, gains. They can leverage their, their national belonging, their national identity, um, and, and play with, you know, sort of negotiate gender norms within certain parameters and still make the sorts of claims that they want to make, demands for women's rights, in some cases, they can even justify the claims for certain women's rights based on what is good and proper within, you know, um, a particular national context. So uh, I don't um, I, I, I see that this that this relationship between certain gender norms and national and, and constructions of national sovereignty is actually very difficult to challenge. And it would to do, to do so outright would involve the formulation of a sort of feminist discourse that is completely sort of challenging the whole basis in which international relations is organized, um, which is not to say it's impossible, but it's a very big task. And I think quite understandably, most women are focused much more uh, um, on on tasks that seem closer to home
0: Right. Well, I love that you're saying that uh, it's completely impossible because uh, as you were talking, I was just thinking that, uh, I mean, even in the U.S., I see when women do some sort of activism or get engaged politically or are outrageous and outspoken um, for, for good reasons, I would say. Uh, They do face a lot of backlash and they are categorized also in certain ways and um, they're not necessarily welcomed. So um, I don't know if it's impossible or if it's always going to be an ongoing struggle between what women want to achieve and there is always going to be a backlash from haters and from people who still think that women should not be involved in such acts of political activism and uh, speaking the rights and even talking about their own bodies and the Me Too movement, for example. So do you think it's possible at all or do you think it's always going to be that way?
1: Um, I think it it is possible if women, um, not just women, also women and their allies, um, they they stand in solidarity. And uh, one of the things that I think was observable from the interviews that I conducted, is that at those moments in history where there's been a broad movement for social change, for challenging the political status quo, um, such as after the defeat in the 1967 war, when you have the emergence of new radical social movements and political movements, and women were part of those. I think it was much easier for women to, uh, and, and it's a similar situation, you know, in, in 2011 and afterwards with the uprisings, it's much easier then for women to um, challenge dominant gender norms um, because they're able to insert their agenda for change into a wider agenda uh, for socio political change. So it's that, it's having that those um, alliances with other movements as well as sort of having the solidarity of other women uh, that allow, that gives the possibility, I think, to really challenge um, existing power structures and and dominant norms.
0: Right. Uh, Solidarity, like you're saying, is definitely the key, I guess, for women to move forward. Uh, which gets me to the point you talk about in your book about the politicizing of feminism. Um, And you note that state feminism signaled the progressive character of the regime, thereby contributing to the regime's legitimacy, particularly vis-a-vis its main political rival, the Muslim Brotherhood. We're talking about the Nasser era in Egypt. So Nasser ridiculed the Muslim Brotherhood's attitudes towards women's rights, characterizing them as reactionary and a threat to the gains of the Egyptian revolution. Um, So I would like to hear from you about how women you interviewed expressed that idea and whether women advocated for the importance of looking at feminist issues from a social justice perspective instead of it being just tied to political figures and movements um also how far do you think that trend of politicizing women's rights has allowed women to gain or lose their fight um to get the desired status in the society yeah so i mean
1: of course feminism is a poli- it is political um as a well as a feminist i would say it is political although interestingly a lot of women rights activists would try and distance themselves from from politics, um, because the again the dominant sort of ideas about women and politics is that you know it's not a respectable arena uh, for or it's a questionable arena for women to participate in. It's actually, I think, either. For strategic reasons, or because women have also internalized that idea, a lot of women would call their would not call their women's rights activism political. The whole point of my book is to show that, despite that, it obviously does have very political implications. There's a, I think what you, your question points to is the very longstanding association of women's rights and state feminism in in the in the arab world and um in particular although i don't think it's it's not just confined to the arab world and the difficult choices that that can throw up for women activists um given that the these um these state feminist regimes also happen to be authoritarian um and um since the 1970s also uh Putting forward, you know, structural adjustment programs and dismantling sort of social welfare uh, infrastructure that um, was there as a safety net for some of the poorest and most vulnerable people in society. So that that association um, of with state feminism, I th- think different women have different attitudes towards it. That you can't, um, and you can see both advantages and disadvantages depending on what your criteria of assessment are. If your goal is to um, achieve as many uh, legal rights for women as possible, then uh, allying with regimes in their state feminist projects can actually be a a really good way of achieving that goal. If your goal, if you see women's rights as part of a wider project of social justice, then um, collaborating with state feminism is not seen as such a good thing. So I found women on both sides of that sort of divide, women who... Uh, were happy to um, well let's say happy to they they uh, had taken the decision to collaborate with state feminism because they saw it as progress, as 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 the having shared interest in progressing uh women's legal rights and and then there were women who refused to do that on the grounds that it was um they would ha- they would not collaborate with a regime that um was dictatorial or Or repressive in any way. So, and then, you know, there are some women who maybe fear in between those, depending on just how bad the regime is at any one point in time. Um, I think, you know, the Nasser regime was seen for almost all women that I spoke to in Egypt as a very positive period in Egyptian history because not only was, although Nasser was authoritarian, he did have also this um, political project that was not just about state feminism, but also about redistribution of wealth and support for uh, workers and peasants. And, um, you know, the middle, The many of the women that I interviewed came from families originally who were a very humble um, background, but because of the reforms that Nasser introduced they were able to you know become socially upwardly socially mobile and and, um, become the new middle class sort of thing so um, Nasser is seen as quite a a positive um, period um, despite him being authoritarian Um, yeah and of course in the more recent time a lot of women have been were happy um, to support the sisi regime because they saw that sisi had saved egypt from the muslim brotherhood and therefore um, that was a positive thing um, not just for women's rights but for the future of egypt in general so uh, women different women have very different positions when it comes to their
0: relationship
1: to the state there's not one position
0: Yes, and I guess that gets us back to the idea of getting away from binaries and there isn't one way or the other of doing things. Uh, it could be that the achievements that women have uh, managed to fulfill so far is actually a combination of all of those efforts together, depending on the political figure, depending on the political circumstances and the organizations um, active and running at every single period throughout history.
1: So uh, yes, that makes a lot of sense um yeah, and I guess I should also add that of course, that association uh of some women activists with state feminism did backfire um in the run when 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 you think of the early days uh, of the of the 2011 uprisings, there was a backlash against state feminism because of its association with Suzanne Mubarak and Hosni Mubarak. And it was actually um, one of the difficulties, one of the main challenges that women activists faced was to, uh, to sort of take back women's rights as, as something that was the fruit of their struggle, despite the fact that the previous regime had claimed that as a sort of Um, the sort of monopolized that file if you like so uh, yeah although women can make gains the danger of yes associating with state feminism is the the danger of the backlash
0: afterwards right um i would like us to talk about also you chose uh egypt jordan and lebanon Uh, So I was curious, in Egypt uh, we see a discrepancy in the public and private spheres as far as women's rights are concerned, uh, particularly during the Nasser era. You mentioned that there's uh, times in history when they had some uh, gains in the public sphere, but uh, in the private sphere they didn't have as much gains and they still still had a lot to achieve. Excuse me. Uh, In Jordan, uh, you say that the number of women's organizations in the kingdom grew substantially, largely because of the Palestinian women's organizations, um, particularly after the 1948, uh, due to the annexation of the West Bank, but also due to the creation of new organizations established established to assist the Palestinian refugees. Uh, So do you think the political situation in in Jordan with the... influx of Palestinian refugees helped women be more active than they were in Egypt, um, or did you see equal kind of uh, participation and activism in both countries? I'm just curious about the difference or similarities between the two countries. Also taking into consideration uh, that Jordan is a kingdom and Egypt uh, turned into a republic after the 1952 revolution, so did the shift in the political establishment uh, create any differences mm. in the women's
1: activism? So, I didn't really see any difference on the basis of a Republican versus a monarchical regime. I think the difference really is the events um, that shaped, uh, well, first of all, sort of the the historical events that occurred in each of those countries and how that might have impacted on regime uh, consolidation. So in Egypt, um, the, the the regime that came to power after 1952, the Nasser-led regime, uh, was able to consolidate itself um, largely through a uh, its populist policies, but also through its anti-imperialist credentials. And that, um, that popularity of the regime allowed it to get away with a lot more authoritarian measures um, than perhaps some other regimes such as Jordan. And as a result, the there was you know the, the regime cracked down on all forms of independence in Egypt all forms of independent activism, including women's activism. So actually, it was very difficult for women to be activists in their own right under the Nasser regime. Uh, I couldn't really find any examples of women who were independent activists. There were state feminists, but not independent activists. Whereas in Jordan, um, the regime had to work a lot harder to gain popularity and uh, as a result there was actually uh, more freedom Um, and the you also had the radicalizing effect of the 1948 war and the and the loss of palestine and and the and the influence that incoming palestinian refugees also had on the political scene So there were more independent women's organisations in Jordan compared to Egypt. However, that ended in 1956 when there was um, when the when the regime basically decided to also clamp down on all all forms of independent activism. Um, And and that was with the help of uh, the British and and the US. so, they, the monarchy put an end to that sort of um, liberal period <clears throat> in Jordanian politics. But for for that period in which there was some freedom, there were there was the opportunity for, for women to um, create organisations, to create new initiatives. So there was a lot of activity. I was. That's actually something that <clears throat> some people who don't know very much about Jordan might be surprised to know now you know given situation in Jordan now um, that you know Jordan actually had a very thriving uh, political scene uh, for for several years so really uh, what I'm saying is actually it's quite important the degree of political and civil freedoms within society that sort of really makes a difference to the ability of uh independent women's activism to emerge and then there's also the sort of emergency aspect when there's a sort of national emergency that also so that's certainly the case in lebanon during the civil war that also gives an impetus um, for women to become involved in particularly forms of say humanitarian types of activism Um, because, um, you know, it's all about the having to deal with the emergency, you know, that sort of suspends any um, normal expectations about what women should or shouldn't be doing.
0: That's very informative. There is a lot of details in the book that uh, I would like to talk about. Uh, But one in particular that I think uh, it would be interesting to address um, is you talk about the post-1980s and the end of the war and the fall of the Soviet Union and the rise of the U.S. as a superpower. Um, uh, At the same time, in the Arab world, there was uh, a lot of repression of radical movements uh, which you, th- you say in the book is has been with the complicity, if not the active help of the United States and its regional allies, uh, which pushed women out of contentious political activism and deprived them of spaces for performing alternative norms of femininity. Um, so I was wondering if you could give us a little more explanation on <coughs> your opinion, excuse me, on your opinion uh, regarding the role of the United States in pushing forward or hindering women's rights in the Middle East um, and the active versus implicit role the U.S. plays in propagating certain ideas about the subjugation of women in the Arab world in general and the Islamic culture in particular? So
1: that's a, an important question. I, I would say that... Um, the the U.S. like many other Western governments often points to the oppression of women in other countries as a way of implicitly giving the you know giving the image that the the U.S. is so progressive and women have all of their rights and you know the the U.S. is one of the one of the only Three or four countries. I'm not sure how many exactly, but so one of the very few countries that has not signed CEDAW, the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. Um, So the, the the I mean, there's already like um some big gap between the rhetoric and the reality when it comes to the U.S.'s position as somehow the ultimate uh, standard in women's rights. Um, the so the idea that the obviously part of the the US's justification for its intervention in other con, other regions of the world is that somehow it's bringing progress, civilization. I mean, these are a lot of continuity in the assumptions of um underlying US foreign policy as as you know similar to the discourse of in colonial times you know the european colonial discourse that somehow you know the US is is a is a force for good you hear that a lot actually a lot of commentators saying that the US is a force for good in the world. And you know, one of the awful things that Trump did was to tarnish the US's reputation as being a force for good in the world. So, yeah, so actually what the stories um of the women activists in my book demonstrate is that the US was not a force for good in the Middle East that when it when it came to the um the what the allies that that so the allies that the US supported, um, and its role in helping to uh, bolster authoritarian and repressive regimes, um, and, and a key turning point, for example, is after Egypt signs the peace treaty with Israel and the US inc- increases its aid to Egypt uh, its military aid and, and other forms of aid to Egypt and this contributes to the uh, ability of the regime to stay in power you know despite the fact that it was um facing all sorts of problems and the, and, and and that regime was and still is you know there's a lot of continuity there um a very repressive regime so And and it's not just the Egyptian regime, it's also the Jordanian regime. Um, And and the way in which the US has intervened has also had very negative impacts on Lebanon as a a small state um, with a, um, you know, which is very sensitive, highly sensitive to geopolitical fault lines uh, in the region. So, and ultimately these, Uh, negative political uh implications of the u.s intervention uh, impact on women they impact on women's lives they impact on the lives of uh, their families um you know between you know the worst case scenario is you know being caught up in war um to lose family members in war um and the best possible case scenario in this is you know to be um to to witness your standard of living being eroded because of neoliberal economic policies that the u.s has promoted um, alongside its allies in the region so um yes i would say that the this i think there's very little from the interviews that i did with women that would show that the u.s might have had a marginally positive role in some respects that's um that's really not at all what i learned from from interviewing over 100 women
0: Mm. it's very interesting perspective thank you nicola uh actually i do have uh, still lots of questions for you but uh, i guess we've taken up a lot of your time so thank you so much um but i would just like to end uh this podcast by asking uh, what are you working on now and what's your project after finishing this wonderful book
1: right so at the moment i'm working on something that's quite different which is a book about popular culture and the egyptian revolution Uh, although gender comes into it because that's part of um what i look at the Re, the way in which gender norms were reconfigured through popular culture um, in the um, mid, middle of the sort of revolutionary period after the 2011 uprising. That's a book I'm writing with um, two other colleagues who um, worked with me also on the the digital archive that we produced. Um, and the other thing I'm beginning to uh, stop. I've been looking at for the past um, almost year is how COVID-19 is affecting women and gender relations uh, in the Middle East. And I've been trying to get some uh, grant money in order to uh, create a, a project around that.
0: That's very interesting, Nicola. Like, uh, I'm now all sparked up to read this book and, uh, I really wish you all the best of luck and wish you more and more successes. Uh, thanks a lot for your contribution. Uh, as an Egyptian myself, I really have to emphasize, uh, that I loved, uh, your book from a personal perspective as well as from a scholarly perspective. Uh, it offers a lot of, um, Views that we don't see a lot in scholarly articles, which, like we talked at the beginning, do fall in one binary or the other. But I loved how the book is authentic and uh, speaks uh, about women's voices and speaks the truth. Uh, so, thank you so much. I can't thank you enough for that kind of contribution. And I really wish you all the best of luck with your new project. And I'm so looking forward to. Hopefully it coming out soon and I hope I get the chance to talk about it with you sometime soon.
1: Thank you Dina. Thank you. Your words really mean so much to me. So, um yeah, I'm very touched. I'm glad that that you you rate you, you know you, you you rate the book so highly and it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you again for the wonderful questions. I've really I've really enjoyed this opportunity. So, I hope we have other opportunities in the future as well
0: the pleasure is mine Nicola and I do hope so too Um, all right thanks everyone I guess this gets us to the end of the uh, podcast and we look forward to uh, more books so thank you you all have a good day